verses 24 through 29, end of the chapter. And we'll begin by reading it together. Here's what it says. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Circumcision benefits you if you observe the law. But if you are a lawbreaker, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So if an uncircumcised man keeps the law's requirements, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? A man who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will judge you who are a lawbreaker in spite of having the letter of the law and circumcision. For a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly. And true circumcision is not something visible in the flesh. On the contrary, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is of the heart by the Spirit, not the letter. That person's praise is not from people, but from God. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning, and God, we want to worship you together. Lord, we want to worship you in spirit and in truth. And God, we thank you that you are in our midst. We thank you, God, that you, in your sovereignty, in your goodness, have seen fit to gather with us, to indwell us, God. God, we thank you that, that in the new covenant in Christ, your temple is here. It's within your people. What a privilege it is, God, to be in your presence. And we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for the truths in the book of Romans. God, we pray that you'd give us grace to learn from you today, to hear from you today. God, we pray that your spirit would speak to us this morning. God, that you give us grace to engage with this text, to learn from it, be edified by it, Lord, that we might worship you more wholeheartedly. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Raise your hand if you have ever been on a cruise ship before. Okay, cruise vacation. Okay, several of you. I've heard amazing things about cruise ship vacations. Uh, I have to be honest, I don't think I will ever go on a cruise. I'm actually terrified of even the idea of a cruise. And I think the reason is because I've seen the movie Titanic. <laughs> it ruined me. Um, now, I'm sure cruise ships are incredibly safe, but nonetheless, we're going to do this little thought experiment, okay? Join me in this experiment. Imagine we are all on a cruise together. Walnut Creek cruise ship vacation. That sounds like something we should maybe plan. <laughs> and as we're eating our continental breakfast and we're drinking coffee and we're playing shuffleboard, the captain of the ship comes on the intercom and he says, I have some bad news. The ship is going to sink. We have hit a large section of the coral reef, and we're taking on water very quickly, and in a matter of a few hours, the ship is going to be underwater. But don't worry, don't panic. We've got calls out to rescue ships, they're on their way, and we have a life vest for every person on board. There's a life vest, put your life vest on, and you'll be able to survive the ship sinking until the rescue ships come. And so we all go to the area where they're handing out the life vests and you get there and they give you one of these. I have a picture here. That's what they hand you. And in case you can't see or you can't tell, this is not a life vest in this picture. This is actually a weight vest. 
And if in that scenario, the vests that are being handed out to you in a real survival situation are actually 50-pound weight vests, how do you feel about your prospects of surviving a shipwreck in the middle of the ocean? Not good. I mean, you would know for sure we're all going to die. That's what you would know. I mean, if you got there and they're like, hey, here's a life vest, it's a 50-pound weight vest, you're thinking, it's over. We're all going to die. And this is exactly the Jewish situation in the first century. The Jews, just like you, just like me, they needed salvation from their sin. Just like in our pretend scenario, they needed salvation. Just like us on our cruise ship sinking in the middle of the ocean. But instead of putting on life vests, they're putting on weight vests. That's what's happening. This is what Paul is trying to tell them in Romans chapter 2. He's trying to tell them, you think you have a life vest on, but it's really a weight vest. The thing that you are trusting in to make you right with God and, and deal with your sin is guaranteeing your condemnation. That's his point. It's a very strong point, a very important point. And to get this point across, Paul resorts to three shockingly offensive statements. Statements about circumcision. Okay, so if you're, if you're here this morning and you don't know what circumcision is, then you can ask your parents about that, okay? <laughs> don't Google it. Ask your parents what it is. But that's all over our text this morning. And the word means to cut off. And to really get Paul's point, you need to be working with the same understanding of circumcision that his audience had. So we're going to start with a little background on circumcision. And for that, we need to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 17, the very beginning of the Bible. This is where circumcision first shows up. We actually studied this passage several months ago in our study through the book of Genesis. The Jews were a people marked by circumcision. Now, why did they do this? Why did the Jews practice circumcision? Well, in Genesis 17, God comes to Abraham, who is the father of the nation of Israel. He's the first Jew chosen by God. All Jews descended from Abraham. And this is what God says to Abraham in Genesis 17. Verse 11. You must circumcise the flesh of your foreskin to serve as a sign of the covenant between me and you. Throughout your generations, every male among you is to be circumcised at eight days old. Whether born in your household or purchased, he must be circumcised. My covenant will be marked in your flesh as a permanent covenant. So Abraham, father of the Jewish people, all Jews descend from him, and God, in his sovereignty, he indicates that his special relationship with Abraham. So God comes to Abraham, he says, listen, I'm going to be your God. Uh, and from you, there's going to be a whole nation of people who will be my chosen people. And the sign that indicates the promise is the sign of circumcision. And you think, that's kind of an odd thing. <laughs> that's an odd sign. Why in the world would God command Abraham to do this? What is the significance of circumcision? Let me give you four biblical facts. First, circumcision is the sign of the covenant, not the substance. This is really important. It's the sign, not the substance. This is what he says. Verse 11, you must circumcise the flesh of your foreskin to serve as a sign of the covenant between me and you. 
So the idea is that the sign points to the reality. The sign is an indicator of the substance. I'll give you an example of this. There's a million examples, but this one is especially relevant this time of year if you live in Iowa. How many of you have ever been driving down the road and seen a sign like this one right here? You ever seen one of those before? This is a sign that is a yellow diamond-shaped sign, and it has a little picture of a white-tailed deer on it. Now, what does this sign mean? It means that you should watch out for deer. It means that you are on a section of road where there are a high population, a high density of deer, and they're going to be crossing the road, and so you need to look out for them. That's what the sign means. That's what it represents. Now, if you see that sign when you're driving down the road, should you immediately slam on your brakes and swerve? No. That would not make sense to do that. Because it's just a sign. Now, the sign is important. You should pay attention to the sign. The sign conveys information. It has meaning. It tells you something that you need to know. But the sign is not the substance. The thing that you slam on your brakes and swerve away from is an actual deer. If a deer runs out into the road, that's when you hit the brakes. That's what you're looking out for. And the sign just points you to that. So circumcision is only a sign that points to a much more important reality. Second fact, circumcision was always about the condition of the heart. This is what Paul says in Romans 2. But this has always been the case. This is not a New Testament revelation. This was always the case. You go all the way back to Deuteronomy, which is one of the first five books of the Bible, part of what the Jews called the law. And here's what it says about circumcision. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the hearts of your descendants, and you will love him with all your heart and with all your soul so that you will live prophet Jeremiah said the same thing. Jeremiah 4.4, circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, men of Judah and residents of Jerusalem. Circumcision is a sign that points to a specific heart condition. Now, what's the heart condition? First, it points to a heart that acknowledges and turns from sin. This is, this is what circumcision represents. It's a heart condition. It's an attitude that says, my sin makes me incompatible with God. God is holy. God is righteous. I am not holy. I am not righteous. Why circumcision? Well, here's why. Because your sin, it can't just be washed off. You don't just need to take a shower like mud or dirt. You can just wash it off and then you're good to go. It's not how it works. Your sin has to be cut off. It has to be forcibly removed from you by something external. That's what it represents. And in order to approach God, you must believe this. You must understand this. This is exactly what Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of God is theirs. His point is that if you want to know God, if you want to be a part of God's kingdom, if you want to be a part of his chosen people, then the starting point, the entry point is you have to know, I don't deserve to know God. I am not fit 
for a relationship with God. This is what it means to be poor in spirit. The idea is I can't purchase righteousness for myself. I can't earn forgiveness of sin. I don't deserve eternal life. I don't deserve God's blessing, and I can't buy it. I can't work for it. Spiritual poverty. God's blessing must be given to you. God's forgiveness must be granted to you. Deliverance from sin, it's something that must be done to you. Your sin has to be forcibly removed from you, just like circumcision. It also points to a heart that loves and worships God. In that same chapter of Genesis 17, verse 1, it says, When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him, saying, I am God Almighty. Live in my presence and be blameless. Some translations say, walk with me and be blameless. In the book of Genesis, walking with God, living in the presence of God, connotates relationship. It connotates affection. That's the idea. Living in God's presence, walking with God. It's getting at the same thing Jesus talked about in Matthew 22. Jesus says, love God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. So a circumcised heart rejects sin in the world and pursues God in relationship. It worships and loves God. Circumcision also points to a heart that is irreversibly transformed. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Circumcision, why circumcision? It is a powerful symbol of irreversible change. It can't be undone. There's no going back. And the same thing is true. When somebody becomes part of the people of God, whether it's in the New Testament, the New Covenant in Christ, or in the Old Testament, Genesis 15, with Abram, when somebody puts their faith and trust in God and they are grafted into his people and they become his child, that cannot be undone. It's irreversible. Paul says, you're a new creation. My family and I, we, every year, we like to gather monarch butterfly eggs. We have some milkweed growing in our garden, and we find the eggs, and then we hatch the eggs, and we grow butterflies. And it never ceases to amaze me, watching these pudgy little worms transform into a butterfly caterpillar into a butterfly it's a new creation it's something and imagine if the butterfly could go back to being a caterpillar you can't it doesn't even compute that can't happen it's it's irreversibly transformed the same thing happens when a person becomes a child of god when a person begins a relationship with god you become something that you weren't before it's irreversible jesus calls this being born again in John chapter 3. And that's part of what circumcision pictures or symbolizes. Third fact, circumcision made God's people distinct from the surrounding pagan nations. So the physical sign of circumcision was actually important. It made them unique. It made them stand out. It made them separate and distinct from the people around them. And then the fourth fact is that circumcision was taken very seriously in the Old Covenant. Verse 14 of Genesis 17 says, If any male is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that man will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So the the physical condition of being circumcised really mattered. So much that God says, if if your children, your babies, are not circumcised, they are not cut off 
then they will be cut off from being part of my people. It was a very serious thing under the old covenant. And so the point is, this is a Jewish distinctive. This is in the Jewish psyche, the Jewish identity. It's a huge part of their identity. They were the circumcised people of God. Gentiles were uncircumcised and therefore cut off from God. So you need that background. Now that you have that background, you can understand how shockingly offensive these three statements are. First, this is what Paul says. This is my paraphrase. You, as a circumcised Jew, have become an uncircumcised Gentile. This is what he says. Verse 25. Circumcision benefits you if you observe the law, but if you are a lawbreaker, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So here's the equation. Circumcision minus obedience to God equals uncircumcision. He says, you have not obeyed. You've broken God's law. Therefore, in God's eyes, you are uncircumcised. Statement number two. Gentiles who obey the law instead become circumcised Jews. Verse 26. So if an uncircumcised man keeps the law's requirements, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? So the equation, uncircumcision plus obedience to God equals circumcision. This is wild. <laughs> if, you, if you are an ethnic Jew culturally in the first century, and Paul is saying uncircumcised Gentiles are far more Jewish than you if they obey God's commands in faith. Third statement. Uncircumcised Gentiles who obey in faith will stand in judgment over disobedient Jews. This is what he says in verse 27. Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. You have to remember what Paul's talking about right before this. This is what we studied last week. He's, he's laying out the Jewish identity. The Jews viewed themselves as pupils, students of the law. They viewed themselves as uniquely possessors of the truth in the Old Testament scriptures. They viewed themselves, therefore, as privileged teachers of the world. They were the chosen people of God whose entire life and culture centered around the word of God written down in the Old Testament scriptures. They viewed themselves as lights in the darkness, guides to the blind, and they viewed themselves as standing alongside God in judgment over the world. This is how they viewed themselves, because they were circumcised. They were the chosen people of God. And here, Paul says, no, no, nope. Instead of judging heathen Gentiles, the Gentiles will actually stand in judgment over you Jews. That's what's actually going to happen. This is meant to be offensive. And it's almost impossible for us to feel this. We just, we don't come from the same cultural background. But but just try to understand that in your mind. This is meant to shake them up. It's meant to rattle them a little bit, these Jews in the church in Rome. And I think what Paul wants them to see is, listen, you're not wearing a life vest. You're wearing a weight vest. He's he's trying to shake them up a little bit. It's not what you think. And the key question here that Paul is driving at is this, what makes you right with God? 
What makes you right with God? What makes you a part of God's family and God's kingdom? What makes you a part of God's chosen people? What makes you innocent of sin and righteous in God's eyes? What is it that establishes your relationship with God? And he wants his Jewish audience in the Roman church to understand it's not what you think it is. It is not what you have believed it to be for so long. And so now he's got their attention. And he's going to correct their wrong thinking. And he gives them four characteristics of a Christian. Four characteristics. And I'm going to ask you the same question this morning. Okay? What makes you right with God? That's the question. What are you relying on? What is your confidence in? Why is it that you can stand before him and not be condemned? What makes you right with God. How do you know you're His child? Number one, four characteristics. What makes you right with God is inward and invisible, not outward and visible. This is what Paul says, verse 28, for a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly. Now when he says, is not a Jew, he's talking specifically about this identity of being a part of God's chosen people. So we could Almost one for one, say a person is not a Christian who is one outwardly. A person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, and true circumcision is not something visible in the flesh. Here's what this meant for the Jews in the first century. Paul's saying, your ethnicity doesn't make you a Jew. Your clothing doesn't make you a Jew. Your geography, where you live, doesn't make you a Jew. Your Jewish activity, attending synagogue every week, reading the scriptures, practicing the rituals, saying the prayers, observing the Sabbath, none of that makes you a Jew. Now, are those bad things? Of course not. Those are good things. But they are not the essence of your Jewishness. Why? Because they are external. They're visible. And here's what this means for you. Being an American in the Midwest doesn't make you a Christian. Many people, that's, it's a low bar. If you grew up in Iowa in the 20th century, then you're automatically in. Nope. <laughs> doesn't make you a Christian. Being of a certain political persuasion doesn't make you a Christian. Growing up in a Christian home where your dad is the pastor doesn't make you a Christian. Going to church, reading the Bible, praying before you eat dinner, none of that makes you a Christian. Are those things bad? No, they're not bad. They're not bad. Many of them are good. Many of them are even commanded by God, but they're not the essence of what it means because they are external. They are visible. What makes you a Christian is internal and invisible. Number two, what makes you right with God is of the heart, not of the flesh. Paul goes on to say, true circumcision is not something visible in the flesh. On the contrary, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is of the heart. We already talked about this. This is the point that Paul's making. Moses said this in Deuteronomy. God said this to the nation of Israel through the prophet Jeremiah. Circumcision is just a sign that points to a heart condition. Now, what is a heart condition? Oftentimes in our modern vernacular, when we talk about the heart, we're just thinking about emotions. This is what most people, when you talk about the heart, you think about what do you feel like emotionally. 
That's not what the Bible means. When the Bible talks about the heart, it is talking about the center of your being. That's what it's talking about. So does that include your emotions? Certainly. But it also includes your rational mind. It includes your thinking, your thought processes. It includes your values. It includes your motivations. It includes your priorities, your passions, your loves, your fears, your desires. It's all of it. It's the center of your being. That's the heart. And what makes a person right with God is when their heart has been transformed. Their heart turns away from sin and trusts and loves and worships God. It's an invisible, internal condition of the heart. Number three, what makes you a Christian is accomplished by the Spirit, not by the letter. Look at what Paul says, verse 29. On the contrary, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is of the heart by the Spirit, not the letter. One theologian said this, when the flesh meets the law without the Spirit, you get a ladder that men must climb. That's true. When the flesh meets the law without the Spirit, you get a ladder that men must climb. This is exactly what Jesus condemned the Pharisees for in His generation. John 5.39, Jesus said, you pour over the Scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them and yet they testify about me. Another way to ask this question, what makes you right with God, would be to say, who makes you right with God? Who makes you right with God? The way many people view Christianity is that you have to sign up to be on the team. You have to raise your hand and opt in. I'm in. I'm a Christian. I'm with Jesus. I believe. But if that's the case, wouldn't that mean you can opt out? Just put your hand down. I'm not on the team anymore. (laughs) Of course it would mean that. If it depends on you, if it depends on your choice, but that's not what the Bible teaches. Look what Paul says. He says, being a chosen person of God, a child of God, it is an inward, internal, invisible heart condition by the Spirit. What that means is it's accomplished by the Spirit. It's done by the Spirit. He says this way more explicitly in Colossians 2, verse 13. He says, When you were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive with Him and forgave us all our trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in Him. If you're going to be made right with God, if you're going to be adopted into His family, if you're going to be a part of His chosen people, given eternal life, forgiven of your sin, it's something that, me, that must be done to you. You can't do it to yourself. You can't just follow the instructions and then boom, now I'm a Christian. That's not the way that it works. You can't make yourself a Christian. The Spirit of God must transform your heart from the inside out. It is only by the Spirit not by the letter. Lastly, what makes you right with God? Number four, your deepest motive is praise from God, not praise from people. 
Your deepest motive is praise from God. Is what Paul says. So he, after he describes this person, a true Jew with a circumcised heart that's inward and invisible, done by the Spirit, that person's praise is not from people, but from God. Your deepest motive is praise from God. I have not been following the NFL very closely this year. I, I love football. Normally I like to watch football. But my beloved Packers are having a little bit of a rebuilding year this year. So I haven't really been dialed in. And so it was just this week. I, I'm, I know I'm late to the party. A lot of you guys have probably heard about this. Just this week, I heard that Travis Kelsey, who is a all-pro tight end for the Kansas City Chiefs, has been dating Taylor Swift. Have you guys heard about this? So exciting. Nobody cares about that really, right? But here's what's really interesting to me. Apparently, sports analysts are tracking something they're calling Swift stats. Have you guys heard of this? So apparently, Taylor Swift, she has made it to a handful of Chiefs games in person. And when Taylor Swift is in the house at the Chiefs games, the Chiefs are undefeated, and Travis Kelsey just balls out. I mean, he's just like playing out of his mind. He's, got, he's averaging over 100 yards receiving, multiple touchdowns, and he just dominates. But when Taylor Swift has not been at the game, it's the opposite. He's had very mediocre performances. Apparently, they've lost some of those games. And when I heard that, I thought, man, there is so much power in people's eyes. Have you ever noticed that? That when the right person is watching you, it changes everything. And the reason is because human beings, you guys, are wired for praise. You want to be praised. You want to be liked. You want to be approved of. You want to be admired. I want those things. We can't help it. That's how God has made you. Whether you're willing to admit it or not, you want to please People, not all people indiscriminately. So some people are like major people pleasers. They just can't stand it if anybody doesn't like them. Many of you guys are not wired that way, but there's someone, there's somebody that you care about what they think about you. And when that person is watching you and you care what they think, it is such a powerful motivator. And what Paul is saying is the heart of a Christian, a true Christian, cares far more about what God sees and what God thinks than anyone else. This is what Jesus goes on to say in John 5. Is he's condemning the Pharisees, the religious people, the Jews. And in the, in the mind of the Jew in the first century, these were the true Jews. It was the Pharisees. If anybody had it figured out, it was them. And here's what Jesus says, picking it up in verse 39. He says, you pour over the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them, and yet they testify about me. But you are not willing to come to me so that you may have life. I do not accept glory from people, but I know you, that you have no love for God within you. I've come in my Father's name, and yet you don't accept me. If someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. So how, what is Jesus basing this diagnosis on? He says you don't love God. You don't care about God. You're unwilling to listen to God. Why? Here's the evidence. Verse 44. How can you believe since you accept glory from one another, but don't seek the glory that comes from the only God? That word glory, another, another way you could say that is you receive praise from each other, 
but you don't care about, you don't look for, you're not motivated by praise from God. The Pharisees worked harder than anyone to obey the law. I mean, their their whole life revolved around following all of the requirements of the law perfectly. And Jesus says, you don't love God. You don't love God, not because you're not working hard to obey the law, but because of why you're doing it. You're doing it to receive praise from each other. That's your motivation. So it's not that Christians don't work really hard to obey God's external commands. You should care about obeying God's commands. You should work hard to obey God's commands. Jesus said that a tree will be recognized by its fruit. Fruit is external. Fruit is visible. Fruit is physical. But what's motivating that? Obedience. What is motivating that obedience at the deepest heart level? It's praise from God. I want to please Him. I I want Him to look at my life and be pleased. It's love for God. It's worship for God in the heart. Being a part of the chosen people of God has always been about the heart. Always. Old Testament and new. And I want to say something here to those of you right now who are working really hard to advance God's kingdom. And there are many of you in our church. You've oriented your life around serving in the body of Christ. And you've oriented your schedule and your priorities around studying the Bible and spending time with God in prayer. You've built your calendar and your friendships around prioritizing your community group and inviting people in your neighborhood over for dinner to share Christ with them. All of you, but, but those of you who would fit that description specifically, I want you to honestly reflect on this question. And not just for a brief moment here in the sermon. I want you to talk about this with your family this week. I want you to talk about this, engage with this question in your community group this week. Here's the question. Whose praise are you most motivated by? This is so important. Whose praise are you most motivated by? I think what Paul is getting at here is that to be motivated by praise from God is at the very heart of biblical faith. This is, it's invisible. It's internal. You can't see it. Sometimes the external results might be identical as far as what obedience looks like on the surface, but in the heart, it's radically different. Whose praise are you most motivated by? And the reason why by being motivated by praise from God, pleasing God, is at the heart of biblical faith is because you don't get it now. You don't see it now. You believe God is pleased with you by faith in His Word, by faith in the promises in the Scriptures, by trusting the truth of the Gospel, but it's not immediate. It's not visible. It's not physical. It's not tangible most of the time. We know that that praise is going to be fully realized when we see him face to face. That's when we really get it. And we have to know God is pleased with me now in faith. But it's also the only motivation that will last. That's it. Again, for those of you who would consider yourselves to be very dedicated 
to God's work in and through the church. You guys are serving a lot. You're involved. You're spending lots of time and energy and effort devoted to Christian activity. And I want you just to think, how's that going? How's that going for you? How excited are you to work hard for Christ right now? How enthusiastic are you? How committed are you? How much energy do you have left in the tank? I have to be honest, there are times in serving Christ when I get really tired. When I feel stretched so thin to the point where I don't know if I can keep going. And if I'm feeling that way, I'm confident that many of you can feel that way at times. And I don't mean like I'm questioning whether or not I believe the gospel. I'm questioning whether or not I want to keep following Christ, but where I just feel like I don't know if I can keep going at this pace. I don't know if I can keep pouring myself out the way I'm pouring myself out now. And here's what I've discovered. This is good news. I've been trying to serve the Lord for over 20 years, and almost always, when I get to that point, it's usually because I'm relying on the strength of my flesh. And it's because I'm looking for some other payoff other than pleasing God. Almost always. There's something else that I'm looking for. I want to see a bigger church. I want to see more community groups. I want to see more baptisms. I want there to be more volunteers who get engaged in helping. I want there to be better ministries. And all of those are good things. Those aren't bad things. Of course, we should want to see people get baptized. Of course, we should want to see the church grow and the influence of the church grow in our community for the glory of God and the cause of Christ. But man, if you want a ladder, try to obey being motivated by something other than pleasing God. You will get tired very quickly. You can only climb a ladder for so long and you're going to run out of gas. You're going to get burnt out. Pleasing God, praise from God is the only motivation that will last. And so that's our application for this morning. Just one application. Seek the praise of God. Seek the praise of God. This is what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6. He says, be careful, verse 1, not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father in heaven. So whenever you give to the poor, don't sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be applauded by people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. But when you give to the poor, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Jesus says the same thing about praying. He says the same thing about fasting. I was given a little essay by a man named Francis Schaeffer this week. He's a theologian. He wrote this back in the 1970s. It's called God's Work in God's Way. And here's what he says about this passage. He says, those who seek the praise of men have their reward when they have the praise. We often read this pietistically and miss the point. Jesus meant what he said. If our aim has been praise and power and we have it, either in the world or in the church, we have had it. It is the one who does not seek it now 
who will have the praise when he stands before the dear Lord's face. Seek the praise of God. Seek the praise of God. Now, for some of you, this just requires a reminder. It just requires a recalibration. This is what I need so often. Last week, we talked about teaching yourself the gospel. This is why. I know it's so simple. It's so basic. It's not complicated. It's not overly profound. But when you spend time alone with God and you just remind yourself of what He's done for you in Christ, man, it changes everything. It's like all I care about is pleasing you, Lord. Everything you've given me, everything you've done for me, everything I have in Christ, I just want to do what you want me to do. I just want to follow your lead. I just want to worship you. I just want to love you. I just want to be devoted to you. And when that is your heart, you're going to get it right. It doesn't mean there's not, there's not things that need to change with your schedule, your relationships. Maybe you are running too hard because you're trying to please people. I'm not saying that there's not things in your circumstances that might need to be recalibrated, but first, look at your heart. And for some of you, that's all you need. You just need to remind yourself, okay, the goal is worship. It's love for God. It's pleasing God. So I'd encourage you to do whatever you need to do to get there. Do the work of spending time alone with the Lord, teaching yourself the gospel to recalibrate that motive of seeking praise from God. But now what if you're here this morning and you actually don't care about pleasing God? Because that probably describes some of you. If you're honest, it's like, I like the idea of walking in faith, but pleasing God is not on my radar at all. Like, I want to want to please God, but I don't want to please God. I don't really care. What do you do then? Because we talked about you can't manufacture this. You can't opt in. You can't sign up and say, okay, now I care. It's something that has to be done to you. So what should you do? Here's what I encourage you to do. Ask God to change your heart. Ask God to give you a desire to please Him. Ask God to transform your heart from the inside out. Look at the gospel and say, God, I need that. I need you to do what only you can do by the power of your spirit. Would you change my heart? Would you transform my desires? And that is a prayer that God loves to answer. I dare you to pray that. (laughs) Because God will change your heart. God will reorient your your desires. And it might not be, boom, in a moment. But over time, God will answer that prayer. That's my encouragement to you this week. Seek the praise of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that you have made it possible for us to worship you. Not through checking boxes, not through climbing ladders not through things that are purely external and physical, but you've made it possible for us to worship you in spirit, internally, invisibly, in the way that matters most. Lord, you give us a new heart. You give us new desires in Christ. God, I pray that you'd help us to keep that in view. Help us to walk in the spirit. God, help us to, to give over our will and our desires and and our frailty to you every day in faith. 
God, I pray that we would be a church full of people who care far more about what you want, far more about what you command, far more about where you're leading than anything else. God, everything else, all the details will be worked out if that's what's driving us. Thank you, Lord, that you've made that possible. Thank you, God, that you forgive us. You've made us a part of your chosen people. Apart from circumcision and the law, you've done it in Christ by the power of your spirit. What a gift. God, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.